You are now listening to Bigfoot and Beyond, featuring the OG bad boys of Bigfoot, the Dr. Heckle and Mr. Jive of Squatchology, the Chip and Dale of Bigfoot, and I'm not talking about the cartoon. Please welcome your hosts, the Bigfoot celebrity couple, Biff Clubo, better known as Cliff Berrickman and James Bobo Fay. We had a sighting on the reservation by the, uh, a fire lookout. Is that the fire lookout? Is that the fire lookout lady that looked out the window one morning to see an elk and she saw a male Bigfoot? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's the story. Yeah. When she had spotted it, they were within 25 feet of each other. And yeah, you full see daylight. Yeah, full day. Yeah, this was uh, early in the morning, like around 8 o'clock in the morning. And she said it was definitely a male. It was definitely a male. Yep, yep. <laughs> yeah. That was like a big eight, nine footer, right? Uh, he ended up being uh, just an inch shy of 10 feet tall and then a 22 inch long foot. How'd you, how'd you measure it? Uh, we, we had interviewed the, the lady three or four different times and we knew exactly the area that she had had, had the sighting and there was a tree right there. And then that tree had a, a curved branch that, uh, started out right around 14 feet up and then it bent down towards the ground. And so we used that as our, our scale. And then we took pictures from her view and then took them back down to her and had her point out uh, where the top of the head was located. And so that's how we came up with uh, just a shy, an uh, inch shy of 10 feet tall. And you saw the track, you said 22 inch tracks. Yeah. Yep. Yep. We saw the tracks. We tracked it for a good quarter mile. And then, uh, what she didn't see uh, was the the other two that were there. There was a 22-inch track, there was an 18-inch track, and then there was also a 14-inch track. Well, that's, that sounds like two big males. Uh, what we had was a family unit, and um, I had spotted this family unit about four years before her sighting, about three-quarters of a mile northeast of there. And I had been working in the winter. I had snowshoes on. Then I saw the 22-inch track down in the creek. And then I started following it, noticing its behaviors and everything. And then as a co-worker and I were following that track, then we found the 18-inch track. And then as we followed that 18-inch track back down the creek, we found an 8-inch track. So we had 22, 18, and 8. And uh, you could see. You can see the personalities on all three of them. And uh, so that family unit that I spotted those years before was spotted by, well, the male was spotted by her, the same track. And this one here had an injury. He, he had injured himself in the time that I came across him because his stride and his step and everything like that was, was, was normal. And then when she had spotted it, she said that uh, it had a, a limp and um, that when he walked away, he, he, he wasn't putting a lot of pressure on his right foot. And um, so she would, she would see him drag his right foot, as he, but he would fall, land his left foot solid. And then over the years, this one here was spotted about 16 miles to the southeast. And... As the witness was talking to me, he goes, this one had a limp. And then I said, okay. Then he gave me an estimation of the height. 
and the coloring and everything and described everything about this and then came across the 22-inch track. And then four years after that, down in the Goldendale area, which is roughly about 30 air miles from where I sighted it, sighted the tracks, same description, 22-inch track, problem with his right foot. And uh, so they have, a, they have a huge roaming area. This well, at least this one did, and uh, but uh, nobody nobody seemed to find the uh, the the female or the or the younger one, and you always kind of wonder, you know, something that big, twenty two inch track, ten feet tall, are the are the children going to be that way? Right. Well, then how? I mean, if the mother's got eighteen inch tracks, which is the biggest female tracks I've heard of, and the male's got twenty twos, which is about as big as they get. The offspring's got to be monsters. Yeah, yeah. I've been waiting to, for more stories to come up about, the, about his son. And in the area where uh, I was talking to you earlier about the, uh, the missing uh, overdue hunter, it's the same area where it's a possibility that the son may be uh, roaming around and, and calling home. How many years gap was it between finding 8-inch tracks and 14-inch tracks? Because, I mean, that's 6 inches in... Give us an idea how fast they grow. It was about five years. Okay. Because what I saw down here from the little bit of information I could gather was it seemed like they grew about an inch and a half a year, you know, with the tracks I saw down here. Yeah. You, you were, uh, after that night, we had that encounter. Actually, me you and Robert, we went out and we tracked them the next morning. Remember, we found the 15 and 9 and 7 inch tracks. Right, right. Yeah, right down in the, uh, the lower end of that valley there. Yeah. Yeah, the mom and two young ones. And then over the next several years, I'd, I'd find not nothing really castable because it's swampy down in there. But I'd find, um, I saw the tracks. They seemed to grow about a, the seven to nine inch tracks. You know, they grew, I saw them a few more times over the years. And they seemed like they were growing about an inch and a half a year or something like that. Yeah, that one. And, you know, I've always been really curious about the, the growth rate and everything like that. And that's, it's a, it's a pretty good spurt during during you know their timeline. Uh, if you can go back to that when you found those three tracks in the snow, three sets, you were talking about the behavior. I found that really interesting. Trackways for if you're a Sasquatch researcher out in the woods, it is so cool to get into a trackway because you get into the mind of the Sasquatch. You you see where they stop. You see how they, they where they feet shuffle around like they're looking around you right you get you get it in it's it's really an insight into their psychology right right yeah and so that's what struck me not not at that moment what i was finding because this was basically my really first track line that i'd come across and then you know as a hunter you kind of look for the, the the route that the animal is taking to get away from you and they always try to find the easiest route through things because nobody wants to barrel through a bunch of brush or, you know, down trees or anything like that. If they know the area, they're going to work their way around it. And then so as finding these tracks for my very first one, the male, you could tell, was the, was the protector of his family. And he was always on high alert of what was going on around him because he... And a lot of people, you know, how do how do they go undetected or you know stealthy and everything else like that? They take the time to make sure that their area is safe before they start moving. And what I saw in the male track was that he would stand there because 
you get something that stands in, a, in the snow for a very long time, the track is going to ice over. When you get something that's moving through the snow, the track is not going to be solid. It's going to be, you know, brushed out and it's going to fill in the snow and everything like that. Where you got a hardened track, it stood there for a long time. And that's what this guy did when he would come up to the trees, the big trees that we had up there, 20 to 30 inch ponderosa pine. He would come up, he would walk up to those trees, and then you could look down in the ground and it looked like he was sidestepping on one side of the tree. And when I saw this for the first time, I was trying to figure out what is he doing? And then I started stepping in the tracks. And then I was like, oh, okay, I know what he's doing. He's he's scanning ahead. He's looking forward. He's looking around before he makes his next move. And then he would walk out, ordinary stride, and then he would walk to the next tree that would maybe be 30 to 40 feet away. And then he would repeat that again, stand sidestepping on one side of the tree and then walk out and then go to the next tree all staying on the high side of the creek that uh, the other two were in. So this guy, this male, was protecting and watching out for the other two. And then the mom, she was down in the creek, hidden away, and she didn't, she didn't maneuver left or right or anything like that. She just followed that creek straight up. And then when we came across the little one, the little guy... He was acting like a child or a young one would do, and he would break away from mom, and then he was allowed to cross the creek, go up the other hillside, meander around, play with, jump on trees and down logs and everything like that, and then meet back up with mom, and then they would take a few more steps up the creek, and then he would break away again, do the same thing, meander around, and then join up with mom, and then they would walk up the creek. I followed this. I followed this for a mile and a half, two miles, and uh, it, it took hours, and I was just floored. How fresh were they? Uh, I would say that they were no more than a week old. And did you have your partner with you that day? Yeah, I had somebody working with me that day, and uh, after we started putting all this together, and then got down into the deeper, darker parts of the creek, we were like, "Hey, there's something out here that is this." big of a foot <laughs> what are we still doing down here and then you know after a while we we we, we left and uh but we parked in different different uh locations and so he had to go down the creek and then up the hillside where i just had to cut straight across and um as i cut straight across back to the road something stood out to me towards my left and then i walked over there and then i started finding i started finding their area and what i mean by that is all three track sizes were all over in this spot. It was about a quarter acre spot. As I walked and got closer, I came across what they do, how they clear or, or make a bedding in the snow. And what they do is that they, they take this, this spot that I found was probably about 25 to 30 feet long and probably about 10 to 12 feet wide. And they pushed all the snow out of out of this spot, out of the center, and out to the edges, and so it created a berm all the way around it. You could see all the tracks. You could see handprints. You could see hair striations melted into the snow on the berms on the side. I ran my hand across that berm, and you could just feel 
the individual the individual hairs as as you know their body heat you know formed formed that and then iced that berm over. It was one hell of a day for a researcher. For an experienced researcher, this would have been phenomenal data. But for somebody that was brand new at it for the first time, it was just like, okay, well, I, now that I look back on it, there were a lot of things that I could have done a lot different to, to you know to collect a lot of things. But uh, I I just wasn't that you know into it like I I, I grew to, grew up to be. Just another wasted opportunity. The story of squatching. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. And then what are, what was your next encounter? <laughs> Jeez, you got I, so many. I, I got I've got tons. And then people always wonder. You know, do they come? Do they go down into populated areas? And on the Yakima Reservation, it's all agriculture. We have potato. I mean, we've got a, a plethora of you know foods that are grown on the reservation. And uh, so during the fall time, I'm always getting stories of them being seen or chased uh, down on the valley floor. You know, in the early early night hours, and from ten to one. And then from like two o'clock until four o'clock, five o'clock, you see them going. You you get the visual reports of them going back up towards the hills, going southbound. So you know, going down to the valley. Yes, they do. Do they? What do they eat? I mean, apples, potatoes, watermelon, squash, pumpkins. I mean, we've got it all down here. And then um, and then when you you know when they get back up into the woods you know for the for the protection and everything like that then uh, they they hold out and then if they want to go back down into the valley again there they go and um, do farmers complain like because they're, they're pretty big eaters you know if you get a family of bigfoots raiding your place over and over that can make a dent in your crop oh yeah I I, I talked to a couple of uh, farm workers that were out picking uh, apples or harvesting apples for this one branch and. Uh, they said that they came across six trees that had all the apples picked off up to 11 feet up. And then there were apples from 11 feet on to, you know, 14, 15 feet up. And anything that they could reach is what they pulled down to, to eat. So just some small ones that they could only reach 11 feet. Yeah, yeah. So what, what, how much is a tree worth, like a tree full of apples worth? Like how, much, how big a loss is that if they had four trees stripped? No, I don't know. I have no idea. What's the most hair-raising encounters you've had or the coolest encounters you've had? Um, on one of the expeditions, um, we were sent out by Matt. The assignment that night was to take the folks out, park along Highway 101, and uh, see if, um, you know, because he had stories of them walking up to vehicles. And so we, you know, three or four guys sitting in a vehicle, and, and about a mile apart, and uh, so that was that was the assignment for the night. And then I was like, man, I don't want to sit in a vehicle three or four hours, a couple of sweaty guys in here, you know? Right. <laughs> this, this is gonna get boring. And so I decided to go for a walk. And uh, I had uh, I had somebody um, remember John Callender? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The airline pilot. Yep. Yep. And so I had John Callender with me that. Uh, that wanted to go, decided to go with me. And um, we're walking down 101, and then he's asking me, 
couple of questions. Why, why we're doing it? And I was like, you know, we're just a couple of people that have broke down along the road trying to get home. I said, just keep talking and act normal. And I mean, if you're going to project that you're, you're looking for something that you may not have anything happen. So we're walking down the road and, and then we had this, this, uh, come off the, off our right hand side. And it just sent chills up my, up my body because I, I had heard that sound clear before. And, um, I asked John if he had heard it and he said, no, no. And I was like, wow, that's crazy. I mean, it was just right here. Then he goes, Mel, he says, I'm an airline pilot. I'm around engines all the time. So I don't, my hearing is not so good. And I was like, oh, geez, of all the, <laughs> all the things to have is an audio experience and, you know, not being able to confirm it with the person that you're walking with. That's so aggravating. I've had that happen so many times, like where you hear it and they don't hear it. You're like, it was so obvious. And it was, it was a squatch. You know, how'd you not hear that? Yeah. <laughs> and, so, and so we kept walking. We radio ahead to uh, Kevin Jones, who was uh, down the road and said, get off the side of the road. And said, if something's going to follow us, then, you know, we'll walk right on by you guys. And maybe you guys might catch a, a sight of whatever it is. But uh, that never happened. And then I was like, I'm going back up in there. And uh, so I said, somebody else is welcome to join me. I'm going to go back up to the uh, to the other vehicle. And then, of course, John Callender comes along, and I'm like, oh, great. You know, send the airline, the deaf airline pilot back up there. <laughs> and he had that blueberry rain outfit that really wore that, like, vinyl, like, plasticky uh, rain suit that made yeah. All, yeah. All, all, that the, noise. Yeah. all that noise. Yeah. yeah. And then we had a, a new person that decided he was from Montana, and uh, his name was Steve. And uh, he goes, oh, I'll go with you guys. And so we're walking. And then I told him, I said, all right, we'll just keep talking, you know, and uh, we'll, we're almost to the spot. And then we walked right by it and nothing happened. And so I was kind of bummed about that. And then I said, well, there's a logging road up here to the left. We'll go up there and, and then we'll do a couple of vocalizations and see if uh, anything will come out. So uh, I get up and I do the first vocalization and we get nothing. And I told him, I said, well, let's move down this logging road a little bit further and, and uh, we'll do another one. And so I, I let out the second vocalization. And then that's when the woods came alive. And what I mean by that was whatever was out there started running towards us. And you could hear the, the steps of it as it's snapping the brush and the, and the down woody material. And you could hear it moving left to right as it's running towards us. And uh, it, it was like a freight train that was coming right at us. And we were right on that road. We were right in the middle of a partial cut or a, a clear cut. And then where the sound or the, the object was coming from, it was wooded. So we were right at that edge right there. And we had night vision with us. And we had... I had somewhere close to a full moon, so we had perfect lighting uh, for for the night vision. And uh, they're scanning the woods, and they couldn't see nothing. And uh, this thing was still coming right at us. And then it stopped right at the edge of the woods. It stopped right there at the edge of the cut. And then you can hear it breathing, just these humongous breaths that it was taking in. <sighs> and... It was right there, and we couldn't see it with night vision or with the eye, our naked eye. And then 
there was a car that was coming from south to north. And then as it got started getting closer, that's when it started to retreat back up into its area again. You could hear it walking away, snapping the twigs and stuff on the ground. And you can hear it as it, as it moved away. And then we got on the radio. And this is the comical of errors that always happens, you know, during something like this. You know, this was on an expedition. And we got on the radio back to base camp where Matt was. And Matt just acquired a, um, a thermal. And uh, so this was, he had not used it before, or, you know, it was his first time. And, and so we called back to base camp and let him know what we got going on. And then it took, it felt like two or three hours before they even got down there. And he was, you know, 30 minutes away on, on the drive and all that. And then, um, by the time they got, they got there, we had, we had no type of activity going on and everything like that. And we walked the area with the thermal and everything like that, but never, never locate anything <laughs> in there. And so that, you know, that's, that's so crazy. Cause that's where a lot of the paranormal stuff people's belief comes from. I mean, cause I've, I've had them come up so close. You, you know, you hear them breaking branches and huffing and breathing and, and you look through the thermal and you can't see anything. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And so they, they had gone back down uh, in there the next day. I was doing some filming for Matt the next morning of uh, all the uh, participants getting interviews and stuff for future stuff that he was going to do. And uh, so a couple of people went down to the, to the area and they started walking around. What, what happened was is that when this thing came down, it stayed in the creek bed and we didn't know that there was a culvert there or a creek that went underneath us. And so it, we were looking, you know, five to, you know, 10 feet up. And what actually happened was it was two feet off the ground because it was down in a creek. And so we could not see anything from basically the neck or the shoulders up. So that's how it approached us. And that's how we didn't see it was that it was in that creek bed when it, when it came, came close to us. Yeah, they're sneaky. <laughs> Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. So, Bill, there's record amount of fires going on out here in the West right now. Over the years, what have you noticed with fires in Bigfoot? Oh, boy. I haven't told this story in a while, but uh, when I was with the Forest Service, I was a wildland firefighter, and so we traveled all over the Pacific Northwest. And um, for, for somebody from the reservation to leave the reservation and seek work employment elsewhere, you know, it's a, it's a huge step. And, you know, leaving one, your culture and then going off and trying to, to mend with another is, is, a, is, is a huge uh, game changer for you later on as you, as you progress. So we were... We were given an assignment in Central Oregon, and um, we were the first ones on the fire, so we worked two days straight, and then we were kept on as a night crew to continue to patrol the fire area. And uh, this was a pretty big complex. And, um, you know, when fire burns, it goes wherever it wants. You're not going to stop it. You're just going to try to direct it and, um, and then pick your points of where you, where you think you're going to help draw the line for it. So we were on this assignment and 
back then I was I was one of the crew leaders. So they were twenty man crews, and each one of them had three three squad bosses that were in charge of the groups. And so those those people would fan out up and down the fire line, depending on it could be you know a hundred feet wide or a hundred feet long, or it could be two miles long, depending on the area that you're given. And so the area that we were given was close to a mile long. And so we got switched over to night shift after a while, patrolling the same canyon area, walking down into this canyon, walking up the other side, and then down into another mile canyon to the north of there. As the fire progresses and you eventually get your area under control, then you're, you're to patrol it to make sure that it doesn't uh, start reignite uh, from any hot spots. And so that was our assignment to, to stay in this area. And we were there for uh, in this spot for five days before we were relieved. So during those five nights, I was moving in and out of this canyon and then checking on the rest of the crews to make sure everybody was safe. Even though we had radios, we still had to patrol the areas for fire and everything. And then when we were relieved that night by uh, the Yakima Nation fire crew. And this was before I was uh, started with my employment with the tribe, but I knew a lot of the fire crew because I had gone to school with them. And so they came in, they came into fire camp, and uh, they, were ta- they were to take over the spot that we had been in. And so we relieved, they relieved us, and then they fanned out in this canyon area and then on up to the north. And within 45 minutes of being out there, one of the crew members was walking down into that canyon on the fire line and noticed red eye shine outside the fire line. And then, you know, back then our headlamps weren't, weren't the brightest. He looked over that direction, caught a silhouette of something. Then it stepped out. And then, then that's when he saw the Sasquatch standing right there and it freaked him out and then the guy that he was with saw it and then they dropped their shovels their 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 digging tools and then they started hightailing it back to the what we call the drop point or where all the vehicles are parked and yelling sasquatch sasquatch bigfoot bigfoot screaming that all the way up and so one by one all the crew members started running back to back to the bus at the drop point and then they all got back into the bus, and then they, they shipped them all back down to the base camp. They sent an um, investigation team or the, some of the overhead uh, line supervisors and then the, the, uh, the uh, crew leader for the Yakima Nation. And when they got to the spot, they found footprints that came from outside the fire line, outside the fire, crossing the fire line going into the fire, meandering around through the fire, and then uh, walking back out of the fire line and then back into the timber, the unburnt portions. And the, the person that, has, that, that took those people out there documented it with a video camera. And so he's shown it over the years back at the reservation to a few people. So you ask him to, to see what video footage that he has, he may show you. And uh, so, but I, I, I didn't have to see the footage or anything like that. 
I, I talked to the co-workers or my now co-workers and, and friends about that night and a couple of the guys are still scared to go into the woods. So fire doesn't really chase them out of an area. You know, they, they, they still stay within that, within that portion of, of the foot of, of, of the woods. That's a, that's an awesome. I, I remember that story, but I couldn't remember who told it to me. And you wonder what bottom there. And I thought maybe it was looking for charred animal remains, like like deer or rabbits or elk or bear, or whatever that got caught in the fire. Then they can they got basically a cooked meal just waiting for them there. Right. Yeah. That or you know you know something to scrub up with to get rid of that squatchy smell off of them or, or brush their teeth or something. Yeah. I mean, that, that that just fascinates me because there's no other animal I don't think that would go back into the fire zone like that. I don't think there's any. No, no, yeah, this wasn't, you know, this wasn't the head of the fire with the flame and, you know. Yeah, uh, it was just mop-up, right? Yeah, yeah, just a mop-up portion. And, and yeah, so it's, 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 it's intriguing that, uh, you know, that uh, something like that would do that with, with people still in the area. Uh, have you guys noticed any movement patterns on the res when uh, there's big fires around the res? Um, oh, yeah. The, the fire management staff over the years, when they're out on lightning strikes on various portions of, of the reservation, have had encounters of, of uh, Sasquatch throwing stuff at them and then trying to, um, you know, chase them out of the area. I always wondered, like, do they know that firemen are helping? Like, because I, 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 I think they're very intelligent. I think oh, yeah. they could have reasoning and logic. I always thought, yeah. like, they must appreciate the fire crews trying to stop the fires. Yeah, they do. And uh, I'm, I'm guessing that uh, not just that, you know, when you're out there, when 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 people are out there trying to, you know, uh, protect the, the forest, uh, they don't know why they're there at, at, at first. But then it's also up to the individual person. What what type of encounter are they going to expect while out there? What What, what is their fear limit? You know, some of them have a zero tolerance for it and then may say, oh, no, I'm not doing this because I just heard something over there. And then the other ones was like, hey, but I don't know what you're talking about. I don't even believe in Bigfoot. You know, you got your skeptics out there, so they'll continue to work. Right. Doesn't it just blow your mind that these are that the majority of people think this is all BS and that they think there's no way they're real? And you've had hundreds of encounters. Isn't it just it's like mind boggling that these things are still unknown to the general po- population as a real species. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, during our whole conversation, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not here to, you know, make people believers. I'm just here. I'm just here to, to share my knowledge and my stories with you and your audience and, uh, you know, let them, let them, uh, either learn from it or just say whatever. But uh, that's that's just up to the individual person because you're not going to have 100% belief factor. Yeah, that's the one thing I can say for recognition of the species. It would be great for all the animals and nature in general and for us too, even for people that don't want to see land set aside for things like that. But it's uh, it'll be a benefit to all the species because like, they'll definitely, when it comes out that they're known as a species, they're going to get special protections for sure. Yeah, so it'll, yeah. Be, it'll it'll benefit all all of nature. Yeah, and my my previous forest manager uh, about uh, fifteen years ago said to me, he goes, "Why why why are you going to continue to do this?" He goes, "Once once you find out what you're looking for and you present it to everybody else, 
they're going to shut the woods down. We're not going to be able to do anything out here. And I was like, that's not my intent. I said, my intent is, is, is to present them to myself. The curiosity is, is in human nature to, to want to know what it is. And if, if somebody wants to know, then I'm going to share it with them. Where they go from there, that's up to them. But I'm not here. To, I'm not here to shut anything down. I'm just. I'm just sharing my my knowledge with everybody. Is there anything knowledge you can impart on us? I love it hearing you. You, know, you just got so much in depth knowledge. Yeah. The one thing you know, there's many things to say. You know, be careful what you search for because it's going to find you, and uh, you're not going to find it. And be careful when you're out there. I've learned my lesson about collecting things, even moving rocks. You know, we're taught, you know, everything on this earth has is, is placed there for a reason. You move something, it had that memory of being there for hundreds of years, and then you picked it up and moved it, and now it's not familiar with that spot anymore. So always be careful of what you're doing out there. Be respectful. Treat everything as though... It's not yours. Yeah, because it isn't. Mm -hmm. I like that, Mel. That's some good wisdom to end this on. (laughs) 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 All right, Mel. Well, shoot, man. If you ever need anything from me, just give a holler. All righty. Yeah, if you guys uh, ever want me to do anything with you, you got my number. I'm looking bigger right now. I'm all jacked up, all pumped. (laughs) Well, good. (laughs) You hit the new season off of the bank. Yep, yep. This has got me on way psyched. Cool. All right. Well, enjoy your weekend, Mel. All righty. Well, thank you. You guys enjoy. <laughs> okay, bye. All right, bye. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Bigfoot and Beyond. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on iTunes. Subscribe to Bigfoot and Beyond wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Bigfoot and Beyond Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Bigfoot and Beyond, that's an N in the middle, and tweet us your thoughts and questions with the hashtag Bigfoot and Beyond. 